We'll take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. As you're turning there, I want you to know, church family, how much you're loved and how much you're prayed for, how much you're brought before the throne of grace. Uh, The elders pray for you. The elders love you. The elders care for you. We're committed to the protecting of the flock. We're committed to holding forth the word of God so that we can teach in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We are committed to that. One of the ways that we show the greatest love toward you, the people of God, is through the teaching, the feeding of the word of God. And I know and I fully recognize that in the email that went out this week, I said that I was going to preach Hebrews 3 verses 12 to 19. And you may have read that and you thought, how in the world is he going to preach all of that? And so Friday morning on my prayer walk, I thought, how in the world am I going to preach all of this? (laughs) So we're, we're only going to look at verses 12 and 13 today. And I, my notes just got bigger and bigger and bigger, even and shortened my sermon in half. So my, my plea, you see it there in the bulletin, my, the title of the sermon is this, Don't Fall Away. Don't Fall Away. I am going to read the whole paragraph because it is one unit. Verses 12 and verses 19 or verse 18 has a number of key words that repeat. So it is one main unit, but follow with me as I read it in full. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another. Day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Well, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because... Of unbelief. Have you ever known someone who has fallen away from the living God? I have. He was one of my mentors. I was living and studying in Israel, I met with him weekly. He was my professor, and he taught me Hebrew and was the one who really gave me a love for the language of biblical Hebrew. He taught me the life of Christ. He taught me the land of Israel. He taught me archaeology. He took us hiking all through the deserts of southern Israel. 
We even boarded a plane and traveled to Turkey together and traveled through the sites of Paul's third missionary journey together. He had me over to his home repeatedly. He discipled me. I I sat under his preaching. I sat under his teaching. I sat under his lectures. He taught me so much of the word of God. But he fell away from the living God. Currently, he denies the deity of Christ. In fact, just this very week, I was surveying his YouTube channel. He put up a video with this title. Quote, Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is not God. End of quotation marks. What? How how does that happen? How, how, How does someone who professed faith and someone who appeared to have genuine faith, someone who hung around the community of believers, somebody who knew the gospel, somebody who knew the scriptural teachings and biblical theology, how does someone like that fall away from the living God? And that's a warning. That's a warning. It's a warning to me. It's a warning to all of us that we would take care of the danger of falling away so that his story does not become your story. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his young protege in the faith, and he says in 1 Timothy 1.19, Timothy, you have to keep faith in a good conscience which some have rejected. They've rejected what? They've rejected the faith. And then Paul says, they have suffered shipwreck. They have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. I don't want to suffer shipwreck in my faith. And I don't want you to suffer shipwreck. In your faith as well. The book of Hebrews has been reminding us and teaching us week after week after week that Jesus is better. It has been teaching us the superiority of Jesus. He he is supreme. He is exalted. He is magnificent. He is better than anything or everything you could ever live for in this world. World And chapter 3, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, look at verse 1. The preacher says in verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. The Old Testament even tells us, we read in Hebrews chapter 3, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This God created all things. He made all things. He provided for his people Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness. Take care that you do not harden your heart like Israel did of old. 
Psalm 95 is a wonderful portion of the Bible, which is a call to worship. Come, let us, let us worship. Let us, let us worship the Lord. Let's kneel and bow down. Let's, let's kneel before the Lord, our maker, because he made the heavens. He made the earth. The sea is his. The mountain peaks are in his hand. God made everything. We ought to worship him. But then Psalm 95 says, but today, Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Now, in our section, in verses 12 to 19, at the end of chapter 3, the author is saying to every one of us, take care, take care, be careful, be on the alert, be watchful, so that you're not unbelieving. Now, Where we are in Hebrews 3 is we are in a warning passage. The book of Hebrews has five warnings, and we saw one of them in chapter 2. Remember that a few months ago? In Hebrews 2, pay attention lest you drift away. We must hold fast to the words of Christ, because how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Remember that warning in chapter 2? Well, here's another warning in chapter 3. The warning is... Don't start well, but end badly. Don't start well, but end badly. Don't let that happen. Don't begin well at the start. And I suppose that's easy to do. Jesus tells a parable of the soils, and three of them start well. But the question is, how will you end? How will you end? What I want to do this afternoon with you as we look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, is I want to give you three very simple points so that you hear the danger of falling away. Hear the danger, the danger, the danger. Don't fall away. Really easy points. We're probably going to cover half of it today, and then next time we'll finish the same sermon outline with the rest of the passage. The first point that I want to give you is the peril. The peril, and that means the danger. What is the peril? The peril is the warning of falling away. Then we will look second at the protection. Well, what do you do? What do you do so that you don't fall away? What's the protection that God has given? And then third, we will look at the proof. And we will get to that next time we're together. The peril, the protection, and then the proof. Let's begin where the author does in verse 12. Let's look at the peril, number one, the peril. Take care, brethren. Literally in the Greek, it's look out, look out, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, we could, we could all take a step back here and acknowledge that warnings are helpful. Warnings are helpful. They're urgent. They're important. They're caring. They're loving. For example, when something says warning, this is flammable. That's a good and helpful warning 
to abide by. Warning, a parent says to the children, don't run into the street with oncoming traffic. That's a loving word of warning. Warning, don't drink hydrochloric acid. That's a good warning. Those are helpful. If you're in danger, you want someone to tell you the truth. I mean, if you've got a disease in your body, if you've got a disease that is just eating away at your body, it's wrapping its fingers around your insides, and it's going to kill you, and you go to a doctor, you want the doctor to tell you the problem, and you want the doctor to give you the remedy. I mean, it would be the absolute worst crime in the world for the doctor to see the problem but ignore it. I mean, that would be the crime of all crimes for the doctor to see the danger. But rather than telling you the hard truth, he just tells you smooth flattery. He tells you what you want to hear. He tells you deceptive lies to you as his patient. No, no, no. The question is not, is it pleasant? The question is, is it true? That's what I want to know. Is it true? The Bible says, even in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but many will want to have their ears tickled, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. The question is not, is it pleasant? The question is, is it true? And right here in Hebrews chapter 3, you've got your Bible open. You see it right there. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Octor, that is the preacher, the author, is going to give the full truth. He's like a soul physician. He's a good preacher. He's a loving pastor. He's going to tell you, maybe not what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Let's go through it together in verse 12. Notice the care. Take care. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. Each and every hearer, examine yourself. Check your own heart so that you don't end up hard-hearted. Now, the NASB has take care, brothers. The NIV has see to it, brothers. That's good. The King James has take heed. Another English translation has watch out. You think, oh, I don't need that. I'm fine. No, you're the one that needs to hear this warning. I don't need to hear these warnings. I'm fine with God. No, no, no. You're the one that needs to hear what God is saying. You know, when when we're driving down the highway and we see an orange sign that says, Warning, road closed ahead, we don't all scream in our cars, Oh, no, we're going to die. You take action appropriately. 
We take action appropriately. We heed the warning. We receive that warning attentively, and then we respond to it appropriately. Look at verse 12. Notice what Octor does. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you. Literally in the Greek, lest there be in any one from among you, brothers. This is a loving pastor. In the congregation of those who meet, everybody watch out. Everybody watch out, lest there be in anyone from among us. It's like the the author cares individually for every single person. Pastoral love and individual care. That there not be in any one of you Notice the end of verse 12. Do you see it here? An evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He's not focusing on the behavior. He's focusing on the heart. The root is the heart. The ruin is the evil. And the result is an unbelieving, unbelieving heart. Beware. Beware of what? That you have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Literally in the Greek, I can give you the Greek word. Usually I don't do this, but you'll know it. It's the word apostasia. Verse 12, be careful, all of us, that there not be in any of our number an apostate. Well, what's apostasy? What what is an apostate? What's that? Well, apostasy is the deliberate repudiation, or we might say the abandonment, the deliberate abandonment of the faith that somebody once professed. An apostate is not just an unbeliever. An apostate is not somebody who's just disobedient. An apostate is not just somebody who goes to hell. An apostate is a willful abandonment of Christ. It's somebody who says, you know, I used to believe that, but now I willfully, deliberately reject it. This is not a stumbling from the truth. This isn't sort of a coldness of heart. This isn't a a mere backsliding. No, no, no. This is a willful departure from the truth. Much more of this in chapter 6 of Hebrews as well. The warning in verse 12 is the author is saying, everybody in the congregation, look out, beware, lest there be in any one among us an evil, unbelieving heart that apostatizes. Don't start out good believing but end up unbelieving. Don't start well, but then end poorly. Turning away from Jesus is not a rejecting of religion, like somebody saying, I'm rejecting my atheism, I'm rejecting my Islam, whatever it might be. Do you see how he quotes it at the end of verse 12? You're falling away from the living God. It is a turning from the living God. By the way, did you notice at the beginning of verse 12, the word brethren? 
He doesn't say, now to all you pagans out there. No, he's talking to the congregation of believers. Remember, Hebrews is a sermon. He's preaching to a congregation of believers, and he wants the believers to take care, to look out, to watch out, to be on guard, to listen attentively, so that there not be in any one from among the number somebody who falls away. I fear, I fear that somebody might think, no, that's not me, that won't happen to me, I'm good. It just might be that in that attitude of pride, you need to hear this warning. I mean, does it really happen? Well, it did to my mentor. It can happen. I want you to take your Bible. Let me just show you some biblical examples of this. Turn to the end of the New Testament, 3 John, just before the book of Jude and Revelation. 3 John, I am so mindful of this, and I pray through this often, praying that God would protect us from diatrophies. Look at 3 John, verse 9. The Apostle John says, I wrote something to the church, but here's a man named Diotrephes. Notice how he's described. He loves to be first. And and he doesn't accept what we say. And for this reason, if I come, I'm going to call attention to his deeds. That's like public church discipline, which he does. What does he do? Unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and even puts them out of the church. It's no longer become the church of Jesus. It's become the church of diatrophies. You got to do things my way. Another example of an apostate in the Bible is found in Acts chapter 1. Maybe it's the most obvious example, and that's Judas. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus, often described and defined in the Bible as the one who would betray Jesus. If you look at Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, brethren, Peter says, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us. He he was one of us. He was an apostle. And he received the share in the ministry, but now the man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, falling headlong. He burst out in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out, and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. Judas willfully turned away from from Jesus. Another example that we could go to in the Bible is found in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12. It's the man Jeroboam. Jeroboam rebelled from King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and he left the worship of God. He left the worship of the true God, and he says, I'm not going to worship God at the temple. I'm not going to do that. We're going to build our own worship center. We're going to do things our way. So that's what he does. In 1 Kings chapter 12, he builds two golden calves, and he tells the people of Israel, one in Bethel, one in Dan, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he made houses on high places, and he made his own priests, and he instituted a feast, and he sacrificed to these golden calves and all these high places. 
which he devised in his own heart. But it's not only in the Bible. In the early church, there was a man by the name of Arius. Arius, in the early third century, was a Christian priest from Alexandria, Egypt. But he ended up denying the Trinity. He ended up saying that Jesus was not divine. And he began to teach, and he began to preach, and he began to write this heresy. Apostate. But it's not just old school. Bart Ehrman, if any of you know that name, University of North Carolina, he's a professor today. His goal, by his own admission, is to shatter the faith of collegians who come with Christian faith. He's a public apostate seeking to turn young people away from the faith of the Bible. He is a dangerous man. It's not only Bart Ehrman in the academic world, Josh Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Former pastor of Covenant Life Church, one of the founders of the Sovereign Grace Ministry, as you well know, he has rejected and denied the faith. He rejects it publicly. I was looking at his website this week and the way that he describes himself as confused. Apostasy, a willful abandonment of the gospel of Christ. In the book of Jude, Jude verse 4 tells us what the apostates are and what they do. Jude verse 4, they are certain persons who creep in unnoticed. They were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They are ungodly persons and they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And here it is. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's like they're creeping into the church. They're false teachers and they They deny Jesus. You you know them. You've met them. But but they appeared to believe. I mean, mean, they, they were in church. Maybe they discipled some of you. Maybe you've benefited from them and their spiritual leadership in your life in some way. John Calvin says, those who fall away and apostatize have never been thoroughly converted with the knowledge of Christ. Listen, but they only had a passing taste of it. Oh, there's a lot of people like the parable of the soils who hear the word and they sprout up quickly and they make a response to Jesus and they look good and maybe they hang around for a while like Judas. How is it that some people actually turn away? What does that mean? Well, 1 John chapter 2 tells us in verse 19, we read that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Okay, I can illustrate it. It's like this. Imagine if if you were going out for an awesome steak dinner. 
Okay, you're with Jeff here. So it's a steak dinner, all right? It's a steak dinner, and you've got the mashed potatoes, and you've got the Caesar salad, and you've got the chocolate dessert and the bread and butter and all the things that you and I love. And they make it, and they prepare it, and they serve it, and they deliver it to the table, and and you pray over it. And even while you're praying, it's sizzling there on the plate. It's just so appealing and enticing, and and you're looking, and you're savoring, and you take that knife and fork, and you cut that meat, and you put it on the fork, and you take a bite. You even chew it a little bit, and then you spit it out. And you take the plate and you throw it on the ground and you run out of that restaurant. Enough. I don't want it. You tried it, but you leave it. And the danger that Hebrews chapter 3 is teaching us that apostatizing is like that. It's like, it's like being a part of the benefits and seeing the, the, the person and the work and the joy of Jesus, but then you spit it out and you don't want it. But Octor is smart, the preacher. He knows that this kind of apostatizing doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen quickly. The way that apostasy often happens is almost like a, a lake that freezes over, you know? You know, you're, you're, you're on a, a cold, frosty night, and you're looking out your lakefront window, and it looks cold outside. And, but earlier, you threw a rock in that lake, and you saw the ripples. It wasn't frozen. But little by little through the night, the cold is untouched and the lake has a thin layer on top of ice. And you throw a little pebble and it, there's no ripple. It just bounces on that thin layer of ice. And soon enough, as cold days go by, that little thin layer becomes much and much thicker. And soon enough, after days go by, a little child could play on that hardened lake. And then soon enough, a hockey team could play on that hardened lake. And then soon enough, an army could travel against that icy lake. But it didn't just happen overnight. It didn't just happen in a moment, but gradually over time, it hardened and it thickened and it became unbreakable. So it often is with backsliders. So it often is with those who descend into apostasy. It's not something that just happens overnight. It's a gradual hardening. Octor says, be careful. Brethren, be careful. Verse 12, that there not be in any one from among your number an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the peril. I pray even today, was praying for the Lord. For you, church family, and for my own heart, may we not turn away. Heed the warning. Listen to the warning that is urgent, but the warning of love. 
Don't apostatize. That's the parable. Okay, so, so what does God give, though? Okay, so we don't want to do this. We don't want to fall away. We don't, we don't want to be those who apostatize. We don't want to become apostate and abandon the Lord. So what do we do? Great question. Glad you asked. Because that's verse 13. And this is also number two, if you're taking notes. The protection. God, yes, he gives you the peril, but now he gives you the protection. Christian, if you're sobered by what you've heard so far, good. That's the intention of the text. But then there's that prayer in our heart, oh Lord, guard me, I don't want to fall away. I don't want to fall away. So help me, Lord. What do I do? Look at verse 13. Here's the protection. But it's the most powerful, the strongest contrast in the Greek language. But on the opposite hand, here's what you need to do. You must encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If you're a Christian here today, guess what? You're a soldier in the army of the Lord. And the cool thing about that is you're not alone. And I'm not alone. I need you. You need me. We need each other. Verse 13 is the all-important means of resisting apostasy. How do we do this? Mutual exhortation. God gives the profound wisdom. God gives the protective grace. God gives the absolute necessity, and we might even call it the vital accountability of, hear this, it's in the text, the one another's. The one another's, as we are serving as members of a local church together. God gives the safeguard. Do you hear that? He gives the safeguard. He, he gives the guardrail. He gives the provision. He gives the preventative. He gives the protection. And guess what? It's you. It's one another. So let's look. Look at verse 13. Let's look at your urgent duty. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Why? Here's the purpose. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Can't we all acknowledge sin is deceitful? And the church is the hospital for the hurting. It's the place where truth is administered. I want you to take your Bible and look with me at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. I want to read verse 16 because I want you to see how important it is for you and I to understand this mutual togetherness, one another in the church family. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one Another. One another. You're in Colossians if you even turn back a little bit more to Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 14. 
The Apostle Paul says, Concerning you, my brethren, I am convinced that you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish or counsel or warn one another. You are filled with the knowledge of the gospel contained in Romans here. You're able to admonish and help one another. That's what Hebrews 3 is saying. Well, how do we not fall away? What is the safeguard? Lord, what's the protection? Here it is. Encourage one another. Why? So that you're not deceived by, oh, the trickery of sin. What does this look like practically? I want you to take your Bibles, and even boys and girls, this is a fun little study for all of us. Take your Bible and go to James 5. James 5. We're going to go to a couple of scriptures here, and I want to show you how good and how loving and how wise the plan of God is for us to mutually help one another. Okay, the end of the book of James, chapter 5, verse 19. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, he just wanders from the truth. And yet one of you turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you see the the mutual accountability and the togetherness? If somebody is drifting, if he's wandering, whose responsibility is it? Who is the search and rescue team? You. One another. Go with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 23, the context is David running for his life because King Saul wants to kill him. And in 1 Samuel 23, David delivers the city of Calah, but he realizes that they're going to deliver him over. And and so David is, is running. He's going from place to place in city to city. 1 Samuel 23, 15, now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life when David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh, and what a phrase, he encouraged him in God. When there's discouragement, when there's despair, when there's depression, when there's hopelessness, I don't know what to do. What does Jonathan, the good friend, do? He goes to him and he encourages him in God. In Matthew chapter 18, we have another account from the lips of our Savior. Matthew chapter 18, in verse 15, if your brother sins... You go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, meaning if he, if he hears you, meaning if he repents, oh, you've won your brother. He listened to the word of God. Praise the Lord. But verse 16, if, if, if he does not listen to you, then, then you take further action. You take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. But if he doesn't even listen to them, even the group that is re- re- reproving him, then you tell it to the church. And if the church pursues him and he refuses to listen to the church, then you treat him like an unbeliever, like a Gentile and a tax collector. Why? Whose duty is it 
to care for one another so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, whose duty is it? It's one another. Galatians chapter 6, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, meaning you who are born again, believers, You are to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. You get the point from all of these scriptures that we are to help and we are to encourage one another. Now, go back to Hebrews 3.13. Do you see in your Bible where it says, encourage one another. See that there? It's the Greek word that is translated helper in the Gospels. Helper. The Holy Spirit is the helper. What are you to do? We are to help one another. We are to serve one another. We are to come alongside of one another. We are to bear up under one another. We are to hold up the arms of those who are weak. The same word is found in the book of Titus, chapter 2, when the older women teach the younger women and they urge them toward godliness. You have your Bible open to Hebrews 3. Real quick, just flip over to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. And let me show you this in Hebrews 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look at the warning in verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's apostasy. How do we guard from that? By encouraging one another, by helping one another, by spurring one another on to love and good deeds. So church family, you say, Jeff, I get it. I see it in the Bible. I'm I'm tracking with you. So what do we do? Well, we, we strengthen each other. We are to meet together. We are to greet one another with love. We are to exercise our spiritual gifts together corporately. We are to sing together. We are to pray together. We are to restore one another. We are to counsel one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to seek the good of one another. We are to be hospitable to one another. We are to serve one another, give to one another, act humbly to one another, be accountable to one another. You say, I understand that. So maybe you're here today and and you're you're a college student. Maybe you're here today and you're at university and maybe one way that you might think about applying and obeying the command in Hebrews 3.13 to encourage one another is to meet with another student weekly for discipleship. Maybe it's Bible reading and prayer and careful accountability and Christian growth, meeting with one another on campus once a week. Maybe you're here today and you're in a a retired season of life. 
make it a point to meet with one another for edification. Maybe for an older lady, you could meet with a younger mother, perhaps even going to her home when the kids are napping or the kids are down, reading the word with her and praying with her and studying the word with her and mutual encouragement one to another. Maybe you're here today and you're a, you're a mother, a mother of small children. Maybe you're a homeschooling mother. You could grab the phone as a busy mom, and you could have a weekly phone call with a fellow saint in the church family and read the word together. You could pray together. You could encourage one another. You could have a, a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly discipleship time. Maybe you're here today and you're a, you're a working man, Monday through Saturday. You need another man in your life asking you the hard questions. You need a man in your life holding you accountable to work hard, to work with integrity, to fight for sexual purity, to love and cherish and enjoy your wife, to prioritize your family and your church. Men, who's that in your life? Maybe you're an elder or a pastor or a small group leader or a deacon here in this place. We need people in our lives to minister to our hearts. We need that. Maybe you're here today and you're a young person and, and you want to follow God. You're, you're a young person. You're a teenager and you seek to follow God. You can grab another young person and you can, you can meet after church down in the lower level. You could meet in the pavilion outside. You could grab an older saint in the church and meet together and study the Bible and pray together and fellowship regularly. You can do it right here in the church building on Sundays. Be thoughtful. Be intentional. Be prayerful. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're a widow. You can minister grace and truth in such a unique, in such a wonderful way to other widows and other women by seeking a younger lady or seeking others in the church to meet together with them in your home or their home to study the word and pray and encourage one another in the word of God. The point is this. You can do this. The point is we can all do this. Again, do you see the peril in verse 12? The peril is take care, brethren, lest there be in any one from our number an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. What's the protection? Encourage one another. I mean, the whole passage, the whole passage, the whole passage is an invitation, get this, of running quickly. To the congregation of believers. It's not, yeah, I got to go to church on Sunday. It's, I must gather with my church on Sunday. It's not, yeah, I got to go to church on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever. No, I, I need these people. I need them. We need each other. We want, verse 13, to have a tender heart. We don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin when the Spirit of God convicts you of something or when a loving friend brings something out, receive it. Receive reproof humbly. Receive it. 
cultivate a tenderness toward God and the spirit of God and the things of his word. Encourage one another corporately when we meet together in our conversations one with another. Quite simply, we need one another. If there was ever a verse for church membership, if there was ever a verse for discipleship, this is it. This is it. And it's not just encourage each other periodically. I mean, the text says, do it urgently today. That's the whole theme of Hebrews 3 and 4. Why? Because tomorrow may be too late. Do it today so that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If I could, if I could show the importance of meeting together and being there for each other, bear with me for a moment for an illustration. Suppose there's a young girl who's about to get married to, let's say, the man of her dreams. And let's just say, for the sake of my story, he's perfect. That's none of us. But let's just say that he's perfect. Totally handsome, strong, godly, pure, absolutely faithful, true and reliable. He's trusted. He's promise-keeping. He's courageous. He's a protector with care and vigilance. He's a provider with eager love and keen insight. He's a lover who's humble and meek in his sacrificial action toward this young lady. He's a, he's a leader who serves. He's a leader who models. He's a leader who cares. I mean, he humbly shows the right way. He's a family shepherd. He, he really wants to lead his family well. He wants to minister truth to the wife and the children that God would give him. He's like the perfect groom. He's the perfect guy. He's the perfect man. He doesn't fail. He won't fail. He can't fail. So the wedding day comes. And she gets all done up in her wedding dress, dressed up, beautiful. She has a smile on her face. She's thrilled and she's excited. And just before the ceremony begins, she runs. She runs away. She takes off the wedding dress, puts on her jeans and t-shirt. She abandons the guy for some terrible, terrible other man. What? Why would she do that? I mean, what about the people who were there at the wedding and and they were there? Why didn't they protect her? Why didn't they grab a hold of her? Why didn't they seize her? Why didn't they speak truth to her? Why did they just let her go? That's our job. When those deceitfulnesses of sin creep into our lives, it's our job to protect one another, to guard one another, to encourage one another, to watch over one another so that they do not fall away. Now, The peril is verse 12. Don't fall away. The protection in verse 13 is encourage one another. We can apply and implement this today together. But now, let me just read and say a brief word about verse 14, and we'll pick up here next time. 
What's the great protection that we have? Yes, it is mutual accountability, one with another. But look at verse 14. For we are partakers of Christ. Oh, I love that. It's the doctrine of the union with Christ. We are united to Christ. We are partakers with Christ. We are wedded to Christ in a covenant of marriage, verse 14, if we hold fast, if we continue, if we persevere, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Do you see the duel that you are a partaker of Christ, believer? But you also have a job to look out for one another as well. That that our confidence is that I'm a partaker of Christ. I have been united to Christ. God has joined me to Christ. I am brought in Christ. Ephesians 1, I am in the beloved. There's a partaker there. I'm a united with Christ. There is a wedding bond there. Every blessing in all of the salvation plan flows from the union that you have with Christ, that you're a partaker with Christ. Verse 14, but the author says, but I want you to hold fast. I want you to persevere. Don't fall away. Don't be hardened by sin. Don't give in to your sin. Don't be aloof from the people of God. Be in it together. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you've come today and you're not a partaker of Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're not joined to Christ. Maybe that work of grace has not happened in your heart. God hasn't done that work to you in uniting you to Jesus. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus today and be saved. Be done with yourself. Reject all confidence in yourself. But commit your soul to God. Commit your soul to the faithful Redeemer. Trust. In the living God by simple faith. I want to close by taking you back to chapter 3, verse 1. So, what do we do? What do we do? Chapter 3, verse 1, Octor says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider. Jesus, consider him. Church family, as we make it our resolve yet again to walk closely with Christ and with, and with one another, consider Christ in his astonishing Godhood. He's God. Consider this Christ in his perfect offices, the prophet and the priest and your king. Consider Jesus in his unfathomable essence. He's eternal. He had no beginning. He took on human flesh. He's the infinite God-man. Consider Jesus in his relatable humanity. Consider him in his relatable humanity. He's our brother, 
our friend, our helper, our priest. Consider Jesus in his his infinite perfections. He is the all-good one, the perfect one, the dazzling one, the satisfying one. Consider Jesus in his comforting promises. He is with you. He is for you. He holds you. He carries you. He sustains you. Consider Jesus in his singular atonement. He's all you have. The, The only provision of God to deal with your sin problem. And what a perfect substitute he is. What a perfect atonement he made. What a perfect righteousness he has. Christian, you and I are our brother's keeper. We are to encourage one another today. So as you're leaving from here, let's encourage one another in the things of the Lord. Keep pressing on in your walk with Christ. And one of the ways, church family, that we can encourage one another is as we together consider him around the Lord's table. Let's do that together. Father, thank you for the powerful warning from your word. Great God, every one of us, myself included, is sobered afresh by this. Oh Lord, may it never be that any from among us would fall away from the living God. So help us, Lord. Help us as members. Help us as believers. Help us as Christians of one another here in this local assembly right here to to, to help and to reach out to and to encourage and to minister and to serve and to teach and to exhort one another with love and intentionality. Let us meet together regularly for fellowship and for the preaching of the word and for prayer. Oh God, we thank you for Christ. Thank you for his grace. Thank you that he is the one that we are commanded to consider, to look to him, to fix our eyes upon Christ. To him be all the glory in the church as we reflect on him around the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.